Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8? And we want to make a bold declaration today that we are healed by the wounds of Jesus. We're, our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. He is the answer to all that the Old Testament has been pointing forward to. Acts chapter 8. We will be reading from verse 26 all the way to the end, verse 40. Thank you, John and Andy, for leading us into that song. And for those of you who are um, visiting us this morning and as you're finding your way to this passage of, of Scripture, I want to remind you that we are going through the book of Acts. Uh, today is our 18th sermon through this series, and uh, we are marching on. And we want to ask the Lord to speak to us about evangelism in a special way. And the topic that, uh, or the theme of this passage is evangelism directed by the Spirit of God. Here's the passage for our reading. It's Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go. Toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that, was, that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to guide us? Gracious Father, you have given us your word. We have heard it read. Now we ask, would you speak and impress upon our hearts the meaning of this passage in a way that only your Spirit can? Father, I pray that you would make our hearts open, 
humble, submissive to you, willing to hear. We pray that you do this in us, in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, friends, on a Sunday like this, when it feels like we're fewer in numbers, um, and summertime might be this way, uh, just because of what's happening with so many of our families traveling away. We pray for God's travel mercies. But in a, on a Sunday like this, when it feels like we're fewer gathered, we should remember that the Lord is among us. And that should give us all the joy. Last week, we, uh, we, we went over the story of Philip uh, preaching the gospel in Samaria. And if uh, you remember... God has given some great results, some great fruitfulness in that city. There was great joy, large success. There was a citywide impact, a great joy in the entire city. But today's message takes Philip to the opposite spectrum. No big crowd. It's not even an urban center. It's not even a village. It's in the desert. No big audiences. Just one man. Is it worth it? Would you go to church if there was just one man? Would you feel like it was a bad Sunday? There's just one man in the audience. Those of you who are teaching Sunday school, you know, you, you're preparing throughout the week, and there's just one person coming to your Sunday school class. How do you feel? You know, you're coming, and it's like, wow, desert. What's in the desert? But God was seeking a man. So God arranged a special meeting between Philip and this man in the desert. What's the point of this story? What does God want us to learn from this special encounter, from this special evangelism setup? What's the point? We must see this story in the context of Acts 8. Um, and we must realize that this story of, of Philip and the eunuch is a special case of evangelism. It's special because an angel of the Lord set it up. An angel of the Lord shows up and sets Philip up and directs Philip to go. Now, friends, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if all our evangelistic encounters were set up this way? I mean, if, if the Lord would just make it so blunt and clear, hey, Kim, here, go south of Austin. That'd be great, right? But we should remember how this story ends. We should remember how this chapter began. We should remember the context of this story. Look at verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. No more angel. No more special instructions. This, this was the norm. 
this is what's typically happening. Wherever Christians go, they just preach the gospel. Remember how chapter 8 started in verse 4? Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This was the norm. There's no need of extra instructions, of special angel appearances, or special instructions. Christians just spoke about Jesus wherever they went. Oh, how I pray. Oh, how I wish that this would be true of us. That this would be the norm. That this would be the, the culture of our church. And by the way, let me put a plug in here. Um, a few weeks from now, in, in, in one of the weekends of July, we'll have here in Austin, a Max Style come and give a workshop on a culture of evangelism in the local church. It'll be hosted by High Point Baptist Church. Um, Max Stiles has written a, a little book that we just bought for our church, and we're going to pass it out to our home groups, and we want to encourage people to read, where the challenge of the book is how do you as a church become or develop a culture of evangelism? Not just programs, not just special events, but where we have a culture of evangelism where the norm is to speak about Jesus, every one of us, wherever we go, with or without special programs. That's the norm. That's what these guys were doing in the book of Acts, in, in chapter 8. This was the norm. How I pray that Christ would be so real to us and so powerful in our daily lives that we could not go on without speaking about Jesus. That we, this question would, would be constantly on our minds. How can I use opportunities that God gives me to speak about Jesus? How I pray that this would be true of us. That's a norm. That's a norm in Acts 8. That's a backdrop. On this backdrop, now we see the special case of evangelism between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What do we learn from this special event, from this special case of God orchestrating in very conspicuous ways this evangelistic encounter? What do we learn from it? I'd like to point three things about evangelism, and here's the first one. Evangelism is directed by the Spirit of God. Evangelism is directed by the Spirit of God. From the beginning to the end of this event, Luke emphasizes God's involvement in this evangelistic encounter in a very special way. In verse 26, Luke tells us that this encounter was set up by the Lord, uh, who sent the angel to Philip. The angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. The special involvement of the Lord is seen again in verse 29, uh, when, Luke, uh, when Philip gets to, to, to the desert place, and then the Spirit, we look at verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. There's a specific person that Philip had to talk to. And Philip does, and he discovers a man who was interested in things of God, and, but he was not understanding what God had revealed, so he needed some help. And the focus on the Lord's direction in this encounter is seen one last time, at the very end, after baptism, look at verse 39. And when they came out up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. This special involvement of the Spirit pricks our curiosity. Why, Lord? What are you doing here? This is so, so special. I mean, you're, you're setting everything up so neatly and clearly. Clearly. 
And we know that elsewhere in the book of Acts, your direction is not so conspicuous. And we should realize that even when God's direction is not so conspicuous and so clear, He's still directing. He's still involved. We must believe that. But now we get a very, it's like, we see a backstage of what's happening. The Lord is directing this encounter. Why? Well, Luke tells us very clearly that there are a few things happening, unique things about this person who the Lord is seeking. Uh, verse 27, there was a man, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. In other words, this man, in, in modern lane language, he was a CFO of the queen of the Ethiopians. You get the CFO language? He's in charge of all the money of this queen and kingdom. But it's not simply status or wealth or power that is significant here. Eckhart Schnabel, in, uh, one of his, in his commentary, pointed out that in the ancient literature, the phrase, the ends of the earth, designated the farthest regions of the earth, uh, the farthest regions that were well-known at the time. Well, in the ancient times, the farthest region um, going south was Ethiopia. Which, if we remember, now that, by the way, that's not the modern-day Ethiopia. That's what, what would be today the, country, the, the region of Sudan, south of Egypt. That was the farthest known land uh, in the ancient antiquity, and that was considered the, the ends of the earth going southbound. Now, if we remember the command Jesus gave in Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, if we remember that, and, and, and remember what's going on here in the book of Acts, in, in this Ethiopian, that that might have been actually a, a way to say, here's a guy from the ends of the earth. He came to see God and Jerusalem in, in the temple. He's going back home. And he's going to the ends of the earth. And here's God's special providence working to ensure that someone as early as Acts 8, will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to see God direct the mission of the church, the mission of his disciples in such a way that what at first in Acts 1 appeared an impossible task, to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, in the first half of chapter 8, the disciples were witnesses in Samaria. The next frontier is the ends of the earth. And it's happening as early as chapter 8. What an encouragement to see and hear that the Spirit of God directs evangelism, the evangelism of the church, in order to accomplish what Christ has commanded. No special strategy meetings, plannings. Not that they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad in any way and they're not useful. But here's the word, the word of the Lord speaking in a special way to ensure that what Christ commands in chapter 1 gets fulfilled already in chapter 8. The mission of the Lord will be fruitful. What encouragement. Another reason why the Lord was seeking this Ethiopian eunuch um, in such a conspicuous way might be because of what God had foretold in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, the very prophecy this 
eunuch was reading from, in chapter 56, um, the prophet Isaiah speaks, or God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not him say that. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What a promise. And here's this Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner. He has come into the house of the Lord. He's come to the temple. And because he was a eunuch, he was not allowed to worship God inside the temple. That was an Old Testament law. And he may have felt separated. He may have felt, I want to know more about this God, but I feel such a, such a distance. And here he's going back. He bought a scroll. He wants to know more about this God. And this special assignment God gives to Philip to meet the Ethiopian eunuch, we see a determination of the Lord to fulfill his promises, to ensure that the people from far away, from faraway lands, people who were excluded from being in the temple of the Lord, now get to hear the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus. So the first point of the story is that the Lord is personally involved and directly involved in the expansion of the gospel. And here we see it in a very conspicuous way. What does this mean for us? How can this encourage us? Friends, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we have been entrusted a task, the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some of us are struggling to take the gospel across the street to our neighbor. Some of us are struggling to take the gospel across the apartment complex, across the, the hallway of our apartment complex. We should be reminded the Lord is personally involved in our evangelism. He wants us to evangelize. And there are times when he, he will not give special instructions, like chapter four, cha verse 40 or verse 4 of this, of this chapter. But then there are times when God really wants somebody to come to know him. And he's prompting our heart. He's calling us to go and speak. And we should be open. We should be open to those promptings. We can be sure that he's with us, not just in the special moments. He's with us whenever we go and preach the gospel. But this direction of the Lord, friends, I have to say something else about this direction of the Lord. It's sometimes challenging. Or at least it's, it can come across challenging. Whenever the Lord wants you to do something, it may be counterintuitive. Um, I mean, remember that what was going on prior to this event? Philip was, if, we, if I could use secular language, allow me the foolishness to use the secular language. Philip was a star evangelist in Samaria, Right? He was the man who, through whom this whole city came to know the Lord. He was the man whom the, the magician was following because the Lord was using Philip in great ways in Samaria. 
And whom does the Lord call to another assignment? Philip. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, humanly speaking, there's a number of objections Philip could have brought. If Philip was anything like us, he may have said, but Lord, don't you see what's just happening here in Samaria? Look, this thing is about to start. Take off big time. We're planting a huge church here. Lord, don't you see what's happening here in Samaria? Or, or here's another one. Lord, um, this is not the most strategic time. We, we know you, you may have a plan with folks out there far away, but right now we just got to focus here. Or, or Philip could have said, uh, Lord, why don't you send me somewhere else? You know, I've been so tired already in Samaria. I've done my job. I've been on post. Why don't you send somebody else? Why don't you send one of the apostles? They anyway came down here just to inspect our work. Why don't you send them? But the Lord is sending Philip. And, and where? Not to a bigger urban center. Not to bigger crowds. Not even to a village. To a desert. Who is in the desert, Lord? And to make it worse, the Lord doesn't even tell him what the job assignment is. He's just saying, go there. Okay, Lord, but can you give me more details? No. Just go. It's counterintuitive oftentimes. Humanly speaking, you know, if we had already planted this church in Samaria, if we had been the converts, you know, and we, would, we were all looking forward to, to Philip to be our leader, and the Lord called him, would say, no, this must not be the Lord's way. Philip must say. Right? It's, humanly speaking, it, we, we, we so think that this is not the right way to go forward. And yet, this was the Lord's assignment. Friends, Sometimes when the Lord gives very specific directions, it may be challenging for us. We must be open for that. And we must be open to do what Philip did. We are told that in verse 27, he rose and went. It's as simple as that. Now, here's something else we should also remember. There are times when the Lord brings to himself great numbers, as in Samaria. We love those. But then there are times when the response or when the assignment is just one person. Now, while we should desire the great fruitfulness of the gospel, we should also not despise or belittle small fruits or small opportunities that the Lord gives us. You know, Philip could have said, Lord, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist of a bigger caliber than just one man. No. You know, there are evangelists who would, or speakers who have a, a minimum crowd a policy, right? They, they would only go if you can gather a crowd of 2,000. They would have just gotten, they would have not gone. You know, I had Philip kind of assumed that kind of uh, policy. Friends, we should not be despising belittling small results. I know we want big results. I do. But I tell you, I, I was confronted when I read a few, few, a year or two ago a little book by Bonhoeffer 
life together. Bonhoeffer said something like this that just challenged my own heart in so many ways. But specific on this point, Bonhoeffer says, only he who gives thanks for little things receives the big things. How can God entrust great things to one who will not thankfully receive from him the little things? And then Bonhoeffer applied this to the life of the church. And he said, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when they're, they're not great experiences, even where there are not great experiences, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty? If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus. Right? It's so, it's so easy for us. And again, I'm not against big. I'm not against numbers. But it's so easy for us when we see just very small evidences of God's grace, or we see so much weakness, or we see sin, or we see what we should not see in church, be so disappointed and say, wow, my goodness, you know, I'm out of here, or, you know, how can this be? We should be thankful to the Lord even for the small acts of God's grace. This story of Philip's calling for the special evangelistic assignment should encourage us that in everything we do as a church, we constantly need to be open to the Lord's direction, both in seasons of great fruitfulness, like in Samaria, but also in seasons of small fruitfulness. Because the mission of the church, and especially the mission of evangelism, is directed by the Spirit of God. Sometimes it may be just one person at a time, or one person a long time, other times large crowds. We don't get to choose. The Lord assigns. We should pray for great numbers, but we should be faithfully and thankfully thankful to the Lord, even for the smallness of what He gives us. So, conclusion to point one, evangelism is directed by the Spirit of God. Here's point two. Evangelism can start with reading the Old Testament. Evangelism can start with reading the Old Testament. How many of you have ever started speaking about Jesus by starting with the Old Testament? All right, one hand. Encouraged. This is exactly what's happening to Philip. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice how, did, how Philip started the story about Jesus. It started by beginning with this scripture, with the Old Testament. Yes, friends, evangelism can start with reading the Old Testament. In this particular case, the eunuch was actually reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. And when Philip reached the chariot and heard the, the reading, Philip asked a very simple question. You know, a question that we can all ask more often. Do you understand what you're reading? You know, we should be asking that question even for us Christians. Do you, do you understand what you're reading? 
Do we understand what we're reading from this book? It's not enough just to read. We need to understand it and to understand what God is revealing about himself and about ourselves through the scripture. Now, Philip could have said, oh, this book of Isaiah, it's so difficult. It's so long. You know, don't, don't worry about it. Is that what happened? No. Philip did the exact opposite. He, he is interested to tell the... Actually, Luke is interested to tell us a specific place from, from Isaiah that was read. And Philip is willing to address a question the eunuch answer, uh, asked. And the key to unlock the mystery of the Old Testament, and this is what Luke, I mean, Philip knows, the key to unlock the mystery to the Old Testament is Christ. Look at verse 38, uh, 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. Friends, can you start any passage? Can you start with any passage of the Bible and get to Jesus? Could you start from Genesis 1, 1 and get to Jesus? Not to the whole scientific debates. That's not why Genesis 1, 1 was written in the first place. It was written somehow to tell us about the grand story of God with humanity that eventually led, leads to Jesus. Or if you were to read Gen uh, Revelation 22, could you get from there to Jesus? If you read Numbers chapter 5, about the command to take the, those who are infected with leper, leprosy, to take them out of the camp, could you get from Numbers 5 to Jesus? By the way, at, at the recent uh, Together for the Gospel convention that we, uh, about eight of us, attended a few, uh, few weeks ago, one, perhaps one of the greatest sermons we have heard was the numbers according, or no, the gospel according to Numbers 5. Uh, one of the members asked me to preach that sermon. I said, I can't. I'll, I will show it here. Perhaps we can show it on one Sunday night. It was a great sermon. Can you preach the, the gospel? Can you get to Jesus from the book of Leviticus? Biblically, we should. But here's the point. Here's the challenge. The entirety of the Old Testament points forward to the need for Christ. The, the, what did Jesus teach the two disciples going on the road to Emmaus? Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, after the resurrection, taught the disciples how to read the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus. Can you? I wonder if, you're, if there's anyone here who came to a saving knowledge of Christ by studying through the Old Testament. I vaguely remember someone telling me in one of their, evangel in one of the, their testimonies as they became members that they came to know the Lord and understood the gospel by hearing a Sunday school teacher teach about Joseph as a foreshadow of Christ. I don't know who that member is. I wonder if you, if you know, would you remind me who you are? But I wonder if there are others among us who actually came to a saving knowledge of, of Christ through a study of the Old Testament. It's possible. That's what Philip does here with a eunuch. And one of the things I encourage you in, in our evangelism is that we can start or engage people in evangelism by encouraging them to read Scripture. 
whether Old Testament or New Testament, doesn't matter which, but read Scripture with people and point, take them from Scripture and point to Jesus. One of the things I, I love doing is when someone shows interest in the things of God, one of the, one of the things I offer, and they don't always bite into it, but they, I offer it, is would you be interested to, to meet with me and read together through a book of the Bible? We just read through and make our way through and try to understand it. That's a means of evangelism. Some, some have and others have not, but I want to encourage you. Evangelism, you can do that too by just offering to read the Bible with someone, making sure that whenever you do, you always point to Jesus. Evangelism, here's point two. Evangelism can start with the Old Testament. And the final point I want to take from this event is that the proper response to evangelism is baptism. The proper response to evangelism in baptism. We've seen evangelism is directed by the Spirit of God. Evangelism can start with the Old Testament. Thirdly, the proper response to evangelism is baptism. Now, when I say that the proper response to evangelism is baptism, I do not mean to say that baptism, uh, as a simple religious rite, uh, saves. That's not what I mean. Baptism, first and foremost, is a display of our faith in a crucified and risen Savior, a crucified Savior who died in our place for our rebellion. Baptism is a physical display of our death with Christ and of our resurrection with Him. This means that baptism is a symbol, is, symbolizes our death to sin because we die with Christ. And it also symbolizes our beginning of a new life because we are resurrected with Christ. Our death towards sin is possible because of Christ's death who broke the power of sin. This is what baptism is about. It's a visible declaration of our faith in Christ and of our repentance of sin. As such, baptism is the proper response to hearing the good news about Jesus. Now, here's what amazes me about this story. Here's what amazes me about this story. What did Philip say about Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch? That when the eunuch saw the water, it was the eunuch, not Philip, who asked to be baptized. What did Philip say about Jesus that when the eunuch saw the water. It was the eunuch, not Philip, that asked to be baptized. Whatever Philip said, and we don't know, it had to be clear enough to communicate that the eunuch must respond by baptism. Did you get that? Not just by saying a prayer or by responding to some kind of invitation. It was the need to get baptized. Amazingly, there's no invitation given here. The eunuch is the one who brought the request. And by the way, you know, we, we sometimes be, we, we, we've been misled thinking that without an invitation, people won't be saved. That's such a bad theology. That's such a bad theology. Friends, when we make the gospel clear, when we make clear that people must repent and be baptized, if the Spirit of God is truly at work in their hearts, they will come and ask to be baptized. We don't need to provide some sort of perfect setting by giving a special invitation. We make clear that people must respond 
by baptism and then let the Spirit do the work. When the Spirit does this work through the clear preaching of the Word, the response is inevitable. Well, people say, well, what if you stop someone from, from you know, coming down the aisle, you know, and they, for the rest of their lives, they've, they've been, they, they end up being agnostics. You know, I heard this story recently here. Well, if somebody was denied to come and, and respond to an invitation, and they never become saved forever for the rest of their lives. Well, that's not the problem of the invitation. That's, that's, if the Spirit of God does something true in our hearts, response is inevitable whether now or later. One of the signs that the proper response has indeed taken place here is what happens after baptism. Look at verse 39. He went on his way rejoicing. Friends, a simple washing with water does not produce rejoicing. A simple religious rite, the kind of thing that we often do, okay, I got this checked off, doesn't produce rejoicing. The rejoicing is a sign that something happened in our hearts, not just in our bodies. Joy, deep joy, may I say lasting joy, is one of the signs of true conversion. Now, if baptism is just a religious rite, another religious thing done only, by, only externally, it doesn't have the ability to produce lasting joy. It may produce in us a sense of self-righteousness, a sense of initial peace, okay, I got this one covered, but not lasting joy. Think more about this man, the Ethiopian eunuch. Even prior to hearing about Philip's message, he was quite religious. He took a very long trip to the temple of the God he was seeking after. He must have been a, he paid a lot of money and must have been a rich man to be able to afford to do such a long trip. And then when we hear that he also owned the scroll of Isaiah, and this is before the time of the printing press when Bibles were so easily and cheap, owning a, the, a scroll of Isaiah was a huge deal. This guy was invested in his religion. And he was coming back. He was going back home after worshiping God in Jerusalem. But you know what's amazing? It's only after he hears the message about Jesus and he gets baptized that we are told that he went on his way rejoicing. It's only after. The true, long, lasting joy is not just in religious formalities, but it's in that change of heart that the Spirit of God does, that then baptism puts on display. We have died with Christ because we have been like the sheep going astray. That's the news of the gospel, that we have been all like sheep going astray, going our own ways. We deserved our iniquity to, be, to fall on us, but the Lord in his kindness laid our iniquity on his servant, Jesus. And it is because of that transaction, because of that payment, we have been healed. We have been set free. We have been brought back into the presence of the living God. We have been given the life of God in us. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That creates joy. You go on in your journey full of joy. I wonder, when we dismiss from this place, if you'll go away rejoicing, or if you'll go away just the way you came. 
perhaps disappointed, perhaps confused, perhaps bored with life and bored even with God. Will you go back home rejoicing? Friends, some of you have not understood the gospel and have never responded to it yet. Perhaps you have never not shown it through baptism. I want to give you encouragement and challenge. Respond to Jesus today. Respond to him by repenting of your sins, by trusting in Christ. And if you have done that in the past, but you've never expressed that through baptism, I pray you would come and, and ask for it. I'm not going to give you an invitation at the end of the service. I'm telling you now, come after the service and ask for it. We'll gladly give it to you. But there's some of us who are Christians who have experienced that joy a long time ago, and now we're plateaued. We have gone into a, a low slumber, a low season of our Christian life. And you know what it feels like? It feels like what I felt this week, all week long. I've been, I don't know, allergies or sickness. I don't know what it is. But one of the reactions is that I lost my taste. I no longer, I'm not, I'm not able to taste food really well. So when I say this food tastes really well, um, I'm not really, I wasn't really true this week. But here, here's, here's where I realize I have a problem. I was eating a chipotle burrito this week. And I decided to put a bunch of Tabasco straws. And I started biting. And I couldn't feel the Tabasco. I was like, oh my. Now, the food was still good for me. It, I, my body needed it. I just didn't feel it. I couldn't enjoy it. And you know, there's some of us, and perhaps even this morning, that that's what our Christian life feels like this morning. There was a time when you responded to Christ. You understood the great mercy that God showed us, showed us in his kindness to heal us by the wounds of Christ. But right now, we're just going through a season of sickness spiritually, and we're no longer able to, to feel the joy of salvation. And our taste buds, spiritual taste buds, are no longer working. We need to ask the Lord to heal us so that we may be restored in the joy of our salvation. As the psalmist said in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. There are probably Christians here this morning who are just like me physically, but you're like this spiritually, where no matter what you put in your life, you're not feeling the joy of Christ. I pray that the Lord will speak to you this morning to remind you, go read Isaiah 52 and 53 and see how that points to Christ and let the joy of the Lord heal you so you may feel and experience the joy of salvation. So you may go from this place on your way full of joy. Evangelism brings joy. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we praise your name that you give us so many indications and illustrations of your faithfulness and your involvement in our evangelism. And yes, Lord, even the special moments like you've done with Philip and, and the Ethiopian eunuch are such an encouragement to us that you are indeed at work, that you guide your church in being faithful to carry its commission, the commission you have entrusted to us, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Most gracious Father, we pray that it's not just in the special moments, but in the mundane moments when you just command us, you have given us a command to go and share the news about Jesus wherever you go. 
I pray, Lord, that you would do that with us. And for those of us who have lost the joy of salvation, I pray that you would restore it to us. For those of us that have never experienced that joy of salvation, we pray that you would grant it to us in a special way today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.